Central Florida guy, and I used to love, I still kind of do, it doesn't happen as much down here, um, the storms that would roll in in the afternoon. If you lived up in the central part of the state, you could practically set your, your watch by them. You know, they'd come in at a certain time of day. We were like right in Leesburg, which was great because we got all that wonderful heating of the land. And uh, we had, this probably wasn't the smartest thing we ever did, we had a nice aluminum screen porch that I would sit on when the storms would come in. Yep. I know. Good times. Good times. Yep. And then uh, after I graduated, was it seminary we went to Cape Coral? Yeah, it had to be. And we, we had a, they, we tried to start a church there, plant a church there, and they, they put us up in a condo overlooking the Caloosahatchee River. And similar thing, you know, we'd sit on the, on the balcony of that condo and just watch the the storms kind of roll up the river, down the river, whichever way you want to say it was. Just beautiful to see the cloud formations and the rain and to see the lightning and all that sort of thing. Of course, it's one thing to sit from a distance and watch the storm. It's another thing to be right in the middle. We live in a fishing community. How many of you wonderful boaters have ever been caught in a storm? And look at that. Live to tell about it. Isn't that fun? I've heard stories, you know, you're out there and you think, oh, it's over there. We got plenty of time. Those jokers move quick when they're coming up on you, right? I've heard second row stories right there, yeah. There you go. It's, it's a remarkable thing. And, and that's, that's a, a storm of, of thunder or whatever, but, but of course the message of that song is a different kind of storm. That's the storm that some of you in this room, people that you know, are going through. There are times when, when storms of life come and assail us, and, and it is never an easy thing to be in the middle of it, and as we just sang, we can, in spite of the circumstances, and in spite of all that might be happening around us, I encourage you, we should still be able to praise God in the storm. Now, if you're going to praise God in the storm, the thing you have to do somehow, some way, is to see God in the middle of that storm, and so that's where I want to jump off a little bit today. We're going to start book of Exodus, chapter 3. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, Exodus chapter 3. We're going to throw the most of the verses we talk about today up on the screen. We're going to, it's a passage that when we read it, you'll probably be pretty familiar with it, uh, but it seems appropriate in that, that vein that all of us, some right now, some maybe not so long ago, and probably everybody in this room yet to come will find ourselves in the midst of, of some sort of storm of life, and we're going to be past, if you will, with finding God in the midst of that. And, and what we find in Exodus chapter 3 is, is in some ways Moses in the middle of a storm. Now we don't see the particulars when we read these few verses together, but what leads us to Exodus chapter 3 is, of all things, Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Good. I went to seminary for that. I'm just glad. Yeah, there you go. Insight like that, you don't just Exodus 1 and 2, we find Moses miraculously raised, though he and all of, of those like him should have been killed. He was hidden, bound by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's household until that moment where he kind of identified not so much with the people who raised him, but the people who had hidden and saved him and sort of entrusted him to the Egyptians, his Hebrew people, until 
there was a clash between he and a Hebrew slave master that resulted in Moses killing him and then having to run for his life. And we find in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, how far Moses had run when it says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The far side of the desert. Now, maybe there's no storm mentioned here. Maybe it looks like there's some normalcy in Moses' life. But I have to believe somewhere in the back of his mind, wherever he finds himself, particularly when he finds himself on the far side of the desert in rather a lonely place, doing a rather menial task that he might reflect from time to time. Because having never been one who tended sheep, I bet there are long stretches of boredom tending sheep. I mean, yeah, there's the occasional predator that might come along you have to fend off. But, you know, you can only watch a sheep do this. For so long without being just bored. And I'm sure Moses had those moments. I'm sure his mind wandered. I'm sure he wondered, what in the world am I doing out here on the backside of the desert? I was in Pharaoh's palace. I, I had the best of the best. Everything was going well for me. I, I had every advantage. I had all that I could want. And then I did something stupid. Maybe he didn't consider it stupid, but looking back, it probably felt kind of stupid. And here I am out here in this desert on the, I like that, on the far side of it. Not only in the desert, but on the far side of the desert. That's a long way out in the desert. Verse 2. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Most important word that jumps out to me in that verse is that three-letter word, then Moses saw. This was happening around him, and it took Moses noticing something unusual. But the unusual thing is this this uh, this flame that's there within the bush, but as it, tells, it says in the end, the bush was on fire but wasn't burning. So there was something unique. There was something that set this experience or this moment apart from maybe other things he had seen. And I don't know how long it took for that to register in Moses' mind. But somewhere in that period of time, he saw, and in this sense the point is not just he looked at it with his eyes and saw it, but he recognized, comprehended there's something going on here. Let me give you this example. Guys, men, fellers, let's just, we're going to use another sense. We're not going to use seeing, we're going to use hearing. Has your wife ever said to you, are you listening to me? Raise your hand up high. Is it ever? Have you ever heard those words? And if you're like me, that jolts you from your not listening. And you begin to scramble mentally to try to wrap your mind around the few words that have been coming out. And if you're lucky, and most of the time we are, we can recite the words back to our beloved. Yes, dear, you just said. And then maybe she'll qualify. Say, oh, you might have heard what I was saying, but you weren't really listening to me, were you? Can you feel me? Yeah. There's apparently a lot of camaraderie around that experience in this room. And, and that's what I think here. Moses, it's not just about he saw something. He, he visually had the stimulus come to his eyes and the neurons fired and his brain went, why, that's a bush on fire. No, he comprehended 
just hear, he, he listened, he saw, he, he understood. There's something different about what's going on here. And verse 3 tells us, so Moses thought. Now, this is, you gotta, now, now ladies, this is your point to say. You want to know how a man thinks? Here it is. We deal with the obvious. I will go over and see this strange sight. <laughs> that's how men think. Well, that's odd. i got to look at it. And the, why the bush does not burn up. You know, there's no deep theology in that verse, is there? There's just basically, it's on fire. Why is it on fire? i got to check it out. Right? Isn't there a joke about in, in, uh, in Redneck World, particularly famous last words, hey, watch this. It's kind of a guy right there. Verse 3, it's on fire, not burning up. i got to go see. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, God said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So those first three verses set up what's to come in the next three. The first three verses tell us that in Moses' sort of ordinary life, in the day-to-day activity that he engaged in, in the thing that he was tasked to do, tending sheep, in the place where he took them, I'm guessing, probably because it was a place where he knew he could find the nourishment the sheep needed, and maybe wasn't the first time he had ever been in that particular area. In the midst of that very normal, everyday, walking around, doing his thing life, God appeared, and God waited for Moses to notice. That's the part that we need to kind of stop at for a minute. Because here's what I wish. God would do sometimes is not wait for me to notice. I wish God was a little more forthcoming. I wish God would just kind of tap me on the shoulder and say, Hey, Charles, I have something I want to tell you. Probably use maybe a word like, Hey, dummy, I have something I want you to understand here. However, you can talk to you. I wish he would do that. That's not what he did here, and that's often not what he does in our life. It says in verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look. See, God showed up. tells us the angel of the Lord appears in the bush. So it's happening. It's there. It's, it's legit. It's real. It's a God moment, a God entering into to Moses' experience. But the, the encounter didn't mean anything until verse 4, when God saw Moses had taken the time to investigate. And what I would suggest to you, is as we go through our lives, there are lots of moments where God is there, where God is trying to get us to see something, where God wants to communicate with us, where God desires that we interact with Him. And much like He did in Exodus chapter 3, He waits ever so patiently to see if we will notice take that first step toward him. That was the moment. That was the change. That that changed not only what happened on the far side of the desert, but that set the course for the rest of Moses' life. That set the course for what would become the Exodus and the good
giving of the law and the establishment or the entrance into the promised land, the establishment of Israel as a nation, and the kingdom that would grow out of it. All of that hinged on Moses noticing God there in an extraordinary way in the very ordinary circumstances of Moses' life. And I'm going to suggest for us it's the same thing. That God is present in extraordinary ways but most often in the ordinary circumstances of our lives. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, poet, wrote this in one of her poems. She says, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush is afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. Only he who sees takes off his shoes. You can walk right by, when we look at the Bible from, from Genesis to Revelation, as I look at it, I think what we see is a God who desires to interact, who maybe we would say even in a bigger way, to be in relationship with humanity. In fact, one person put it this way, God's movement in Scripture is always down toward mankind. And we see it from, from some of the earliest pages in Genesis chapter 3. Unfortunately, Genesis chapter 3 is not a great story for us as humans. Genesis chapter 3 is the account of when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that God said of all the things in this wonderful garden you can eat from, don't eat that. And they said, well, that's the one we want. And they ate it, and they're ashamed, and they're hiding. And a little later in that that uh, chapter, after, they're, after they've eaten and after they've hidden, it says, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden cool of the day. And you've probably heard that story. You probably recognize the familiarity with which that was meant to sound. That this wasn't a unique occurrence. That this wasn't something out of the ordinary in the experience of Adam and Eve. But in God's design, He gave them this Eden, this paradise, this garden that they can inhabit, and He would regularly make it His practice to interact with them. Because God's desire, even in, in giving them that place and putting this earth here and in putting humans on it, was that He could interact with us. Who do you spend time walking around with? Probably the people you enjoy their company, yes? Who do you want to spend time with? In a couple weeks, we're going to take Caroline up to PBA to college, and we're excited about that and dreading it and all of those things that if you've been through that, know how that feels. But PBA is a Palm Beach Atlantic college at the time, university now, pretty nostalgic place for us because that's where both Denise and I went to school and that's where we met and fell in love and all of that. Ooh, good stuff. And so one of the things that would happen there when we first met is, believe it or not, as college students, we didn't have a lot of money, although they did give me a credit card like right off the bat. Which, by the way, Caroline, when you go to the student center during orientation week and the Discover card table is there, walk on by. But I did anyway. So we had to come up with things to do, and, and we found a couple of benches on the Palm Beach side of the Intercoastal Waterway that we would go over there and we would just sit and talk for hours. We do that. It was kind of our 
early days of our relationship. You know, not a lot of uh, funds to, to go out to eat or do those sorts of things, but just to go and hang out together, to spend time together. Why? Because, well, you know, that's what I want to do. I won't speak for Peggy necessarily, but that's what I wanted to do with my spare time, and so we did that a lot. And it was nice. You spend those moments with people you want to spend that time with. And when you're spending time walking or, or, or whatever the case may be with someone like that, things change. The dynamic of that place and the memories of it are changed. And that's the emphasis I see and I understand in Genesis 3 that God comes and He walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day because He desires to spend time with us as humans. If you look throughout Scripture, you see that God is always moving toward humanity that He might have that experience of, and we might have that experience of being in relationship with Him. Whether it's it's there in, in, in the garden or whether it's later we read about people like Noah or Enoch who walked with God. You know, that's the phrase that, that's often used in Scripture to have a, a Christian walk or a Christian life. The idea that, that our life is spent kind of walking side by side in relationship with God. Or, or even in Exodus chapter 25 when God instructs the people of Israel to build a tabernacle or a sanctuary. He says, would you build it that I may dwell among you? That God wants to be right there kind of in the midst of them and instructs the 12 tribes to camp in certain ways around that tabernacle so that they would see the center point of their life and experience. Even in the desert is the very person and presence of God with them, among them. We could go to to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is bandied about a lot. It might be a verse you don't recognize offhand, but when I when I see it, or when I say it, you might recognize it. Says this, there's one thing the Lord requires of you, right? Actually, it's three, but it's said that way. To act justly, to love mercy, and the third one, to walk humbly with the Lord your God. The, the thing that, that Micah, the prophet, sums up as what God desires. And then, for you, that's the Old Testament. We can, let's jump all the way forward. We come to the end of the book, the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Almost to the last chapter, John sees this vision. He sees the, the city, the new Jerusalem. And what's it doing? Coming down out of heaven. Because God desires to... Now the dwelling of God is with men. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. And so from the first pages where he's walking in the cool of the day till the end of the story where he comes that we might be with him and he be our God. There's this idea that God desires to be a part of our everyday, ordinary lives. That he wants to walk with us and be with us through whatever it is that his extraordinary presence would invade the ordinary that we live. And there's no greater of that than kind of right in the middle of that story I just told, after the creation and after the fall and after the exodus and after the establishment of Israel and before the book of Revelation and the consummation of all things, right in the middle of that, it says there's a baby born to a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. He is called Emmanuel, which means God with read the account of Jesus' life. And He's with us. He's with the disciples. He selects 
these individuals to be with him and to go with him wherever he goes. And he instructs them and he teaches them. He, for three years, brings them close to him so that when he is gone, they might continue. And oh, by the way, he says, even when I go, don't worry, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who it will be even greater than me being with you when he comes. But, but that's not the only people he was with. You know who else Jesus was with? He was with, often, the people no one else wanted to be near. The lepers. The fact that he would go near and he would heal lepers. Remarkable. The other outcasts of the covenant. The, the category of tax collectors and sinners. You know, there's, there's sinners and then there's tax collectors. They're even worse than sinners. Can I get an amen? Not April, but we're close. There's no tax be careful. You never know what's coming. But, but that's the thing. And Jesus was even with them. And, we're, and, and his name, as we said, means God with us. And throughout his ministry, his, his ordinary life, there were these moments of even the miraculous when through the ordinary lives of Peter or, or James or John or one of the other disciples, God broke in. And everybody knew it. And there was something that you had to notice. Of course, at the same time, when everybody knew it, there were a lot of people that just didn't pay attention. Remember Zacchaeus? Three little mammal trees climbs up on a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Right after climbing the tree. Because there was a whole bunch of other people around. And at the same point, in addition to all those other people around, I'm thinking there are a lot of people that were annoyed that there were so many people in the road. Hey, have you noticed the traffic this last few days? Has anybody else felt like I'm annoyed at all these other people here? I'm amazed. Where have they all been? Because for the last three days, traffic's been backed up out here. I, I can't, I, I'm scared today when we walk out of church. Good luck if you live north of here. Sorry. It's one of those things, you know. It's probably going to be the, the last exodus of all the folks that came in and, and I, I picture there may be people even in Jesus' day with this, this mass of people that would crowd the streets and so that Zacchaeus has to climb a tree. There's others that missed it completely. Didn't know that God in the flesh was walking through their town. Because it just seemed like another ordinary thing, another annoyance, another something. How easy it is to miss the extraordinary thing that is in the middle of our ordinary life. We are in, in church world today, as I like to call it. It's called that a bunch of times. Some of you even use it, and I'm glad to know that's catching on, I guess. We come to church and we do things. And, and I think often what we imagine we're supposed to be about as Christians is doing good things. And there's nothing wrong with doing good things. In fact, doing good things is usually a good thing. But where we can, I think, miss it is getting the order wrong. Where we think that what we're supposed to do is just do good stuff. But Jesus has something to say about that. In John chapter 15, Jesus uses this picture of vines and branches. And in verse 5 of John 15, he says this. I think I'm not going to turn there because it didn't mark it. But I'm hoping it's going to come up on the screen any minute now. We'll all be in there. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that's a verse that maybe many of you know. It's a wonderful verse. It's in the middle of a wonderful passage that talks about who Jesus is and who we are in relationship to him. When I read this, there's the emphasis in it that we need to camp out on for just a second. What is our role according to Jesus in this verse? If a man remains in me, or abides, some translations say, if you abide in me, my, my word abides in you, and, or I abide in you. What is our responsibility? What is kind of our charge in this? To remain, to abide in Christ. And what is the result of abiding in Christ? We bear much fruit. Put another way, good things happen. Or we do good things. It's, it's the idea that if in my ordinary life, my focus is on abiding or remaining or being connected to Christ, then the natural result will be good things, good works, wonderful deeds, uh, fruit in the analogy of this. That's the thing that happens. What happens if I'm apart from Christ? What can I do? This says, apart from me, which would be people who aren't Christians, aren't in relationship with God, you can do nothing. What? Tough. So what, what's going on there? If we know and if we realize and we see and we have this reality that people that are not connected with God do good things, but this says, apart from me, you can do nothing, what could be at issue here? What, what is the rub? And by the, by the other token, if we who are connected with God go about just trying to do good things, it would also seem to me that if we're doing it apart from Christ, what does it amount to? Nothing. Those are, those are tough things because here's, I think, the mistake that we as church world make and sometimes we as Christians make is we think, again, our job is to go around doing good stuff and looking for the right things to do. Sometimes out of guilt, sometimes out of obligation, sometimes out of whatever motive it is. And I, I think the point Jesus is getting at is you should remain in me. And when we remain in him, we do good things. Our job is not to do good things. Our job is to remain in him and then good stuff happens. So what does it mean to say nothing happens apart from remaining The reality of what we've seen from Genesis to Revelation is God's movement in, towards humanity, certainly ultimately in Jesus. And if God's desire is that in our ordinary lives, 
we experience the extraordinary, the, the miraculous even, and we are aware of God's presence in the things that are in the ordinary moments of our lives, could it be that there's more to what we do than just the stuff that we do? That makes sense, right? Makes perfect sense. Goes back to that virtual reality thing. Remember that from a few weeks ago? If you weren't here, so it's actually somewhere on Facebook or on YouTube or one of those places. The virtual reality experiment. Um, how many of you weren't here for that when I showed the video of virtual reality? So I know how much I needed to explain it. So why weren't you all in here? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That defeats all that I've just been saying. Never mind. That one is, uh, it, it was this experiment that they, these virtual reality goggles, they put them in a room. And from, from the room isn't very wide. It's probably, you know, 8, 10, 12 feet wide. And they paint a line on the room. And they put the virtual reality goggles on them and, and the headphones, and they blow wind through it. And what they're seeing with their eyes is that they're walking across a board, you know, hundreds of feet in the air between two skyscrapers. But what they know, because they're, they didn't have the mask on, they didn't have the goggles on when they in the room, is they're walking on a flat surface, painted a line on the floor. And it shows these people walking, and they're wobbling like, really, they're up there because their senses are telling them, based upon the goggles and the, and the wind they're experiencing and the sounds in their ears, that they're suspended or they're about to fall to their death. And even when they accidentally step off, you see them kind of crumble, like they're, they're bracing themselves with a skewed fall. It's really wild to think that, that our senses can fool us that way and distract us from, from what's really real. Sort of the point we're talking about. We go through our lives and we experience a very physical existence. From the, from the first days of our life, it's about what we can see and taste and touch and hear and feel and all of that sort of thing. And Scripture tells us that there's a greater reality. There's a real or real. And it's in that real or real that things are really real. And sometimes in this reality that we know, Things are real, but they're not really real. I'm clearing this up for you, aren't I? You're bl- see? I should stick to Exodus 1 and 2 comes before Exodus 3. That, we're on the same page again. But we have those, those things that I think is hinted at even here, and Jesus is telling us, look, apart from me, you might do some stuff. It might even be good stuff. It might even be worthwhile stuff. But it amounts to not not much, if not anything, because it's not connected to the really real that is the stuff that we don't always see with our eyes and hear and taste and touch. It's, it's the spiritual realm that's more real than the physical realm that we inhabit. And so if we go through our lives with the order backwards that we're going to do wonderful things to somehow impress God, we miss the point that our job is to remain in Him, to stay connected to the vine so that His life His grace, His mercy, His love, all of that which nourishes our souls and our spirits can then express itself naturally in the doing of good things and the the bearing much fruit of our lives. If we get the order wrong, sometimes we're a lot of sound and hearing signifying nothing. Hey, that's a good description for church, isn't it? Some days it's a lot of sound and fury. Some churches are a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. But when you're connected to the vine, sometimes it looks pretty ordinary. It doesn't look that remarkable. 
doesn't look that spectacular. Except the outgrowth of that is God at work in His people because they're connected to it. And there's much fruit that happens as a byproduct of just staying connected to the vine. What does it mean to remain? What does it mean to be aware of God? What does it mean for me to, to talk about this? How does, how does that look? And here's my fear. We've been around church for a while. You've already told yourself the next thing I'm going to say. You've already kind of gotten ahead of me. And you're thinking, I know where he's going with this. Maybe not explicitly like that, but somewhere in the back of your church-going mind, you're thinking, he's going to tell me to get up ten minutes earlier and read my Bible and pray, and that'll make all things right. That's not what I'm going to say at all. Isn't that exciting? Surprise! And it's just because what does that do? That's just telling me, what you don't need from me is a few more rules to follow that somehow will make this all work. Because here's what I think. I've heard a lot of sermons that are four steps to this, or seven steps to that, or eight steps to that, or two steps, or, oh, one key. And they're, they're helpful and they're beneficial. But if you're like me, you've heard those sermons, you thought, I need to do that, and you try it, and it doesn't work out the way you hope. Five steps to beat depression. And you go, okay, and I did those five things, and I'm still terribly depressed. That happens in church world. Or three steps to financial freedom. I did those three things and I'm still broke. What else can we go with? Six ways to make sure your prayers are answered. And my great aunt or my grandmother or my my child or my spouse is sick is sick and I did those six things and they still died. So I didn't need prayers. As if just like there's this formula or there's these things you can do that that meld and bend God to your whim. Rather than, as you're walking through your life, even if it feels like you're on the far side of the desert, and a lot has gone wrong, and you don't know what to do next, you just got these sheep that were leading you around. Even then, that if you just take the time to look, God is there too. And if you'll open your spiritual eyes and take the time to see Him, you'll find that even in what seems like a pretty ordinary space, grouped in pretty ordinary things, you can be there in the Spirit. I don't know what those things are, but that's what happens. If you remain in Him, you're aware that He's there, and you stay connected to Him, and you trust that even though you might not understand the circumstances in which you find yourself, He is still there, and He hasn't abandoned you. And even there, God can use you. God will work through you. Not that you have. 
bless them by doing enough good stuff for the rest of them that maybe they'll go to people in the Bible like, I want to be just like that. Nope. Definitely not. Of all the people, he's like the top of the list. I want to be like that. Maybe Jesus. But Job is horrible things happen to Job. Horrible things. And yet in his story, we have these moments where he has these expressions that I'm amazed by. struggle wasn't easy. Question. And even in questioning, God met him with God. God was faithful. And now, how many years later, he opens this book and we read his story. Because in a pretty ordinary, even bad circumstance, Job knows that the God has This is about. This is, this is a great thing for us as Christians. It's a very tangible thing. We like tangible things. I like tangible things. Things I can touch and taste. And, and in a minute, we're going to touch a, a piece of unleavened bread and we're going to taste it. And we're going to touch a cup with juice and, and taste it. We're going to see the colors. We're going to see the symbolic meaning. Mm. But really, the reality of this isn't contained in these containers that we'll pass around. The reality is that these are pretty ordinary things. They're matzah and grapes. Go to any grocery store and buy cases of both. They're just ordinary things. But in them, we see symbolized the extraordinary. who is with us in the person of Jesus who walked this earth died on a cross and his body was broken and his blood was shed that we might know him that we might remain in him that we might go through our everyday ordinary walking around lives with the awareness and with the relationship that we can have with the eternal God of the universe in the person of his son Jesus Crucifixion isn't anything extraordinary either. Rome crucified thousands. But there was this moment. It's in Houston. It made all the difference. 
the next ordinary thing for Roman centurion Caesar. There was this one that sat next to him. And he said, Here this typical Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and so on and so on and so on will be. That we'll see and be reminded to make sure that we get the presence of God even in the most ordinary 